Well, as I read earlier to you from Deuteronomy, um, which is often referred to uh, that book written by Moses as the second giving of the law, uh, that comes from the Latin word Deuteronomium, which just simply means second law. The first, of course, would have been uh, given at the Exodus and in Leviticus. But Deuteronomy, it's probably better understood as Moses' final explanation of the law given to Israel just previous to entering the promised land, crossing the Jordan. Uh, He gives them this exhortation from the law. Uh, The early Hebrews didn't call the book by the name Deuteronomy. Instead, Hebrews called the book simply uh, by the first two words, which we read as three words, simply says, these are the words. The first uh, words of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 1 verse 1, it reads, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness. See, right before they leave the wilderness and enter into the promised land. So that book became Moses' final explanation of the law to the nation of Israel. It gives very specific instructions on how Israel was to behave, uh, conduct themselves once in the land. It has laws against idolatry, laws concerning food, laws about tithes, laws about feasts, laws about marriages, etc., etc., laws and laws and more laws. It also supplies the legal benchmarks to substantiate accusations of wrongdoing, Uh, Deuteronomy 19.15, evidence of two or three witnesses. And then, of course, it assigns suitable punishments for offenses. Um, Ultimately, Moses announces God's blessing on the people. All who will obey provides God's curse on those who do not obey everything as it is written in the law. Chapter 27, verse 26 says, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Well, just as James, the Lord's brother, taught the church in James 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, he has become guilty of all. Can't even stumble at just one point. And James said, we all stumble in many ways. So the book of Deuteronomy It functions very much as a legal code. It's law. And as such, over the centuries in Israel, the profession of lawyer became very prominent. There were many lawyers. The culture relied heavily on lawyers who were deemed experts in the law. They would render opinions on the law. In fact, you might even hold in your possession an English translation that describes this man in Luke 10, verse 25, as an expert in the law. An expert in the law. So note that um, as this man is questioning Jesus, as we read from Luke 10, verse 25, he's not just a scribe. This man, he's a legal heavyweight. He he is an experienced lawyer. And let's start by reading the passage together. Luke 10, verse 25. says, And a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the whole and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. 
Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Well, what we should find really kind of shocking in this passage is that a lawyer, someone who is considered an expert in the law, in the Mosaic law, he appears somewhat uncertain as how a person would acquire eternal life. He'd studied the law for years. He was likely a very wise person intellectually, had a lot of academic capacity, surely. He was probably much more uh, intellectual than most of us, if not all of us standing here today. But the law couldn't provide him a certainty in his heart about how he would be forgiven, about how he would inherit eternal life. It did provide him answers, a lot of answers, uh, to many questions that surely gave him uh, ample material, uh, a basis to engage in debate, but apparently he found it didn't provide assurance. Assurance, so he's asking Jesus, do you know what the law, the knowledge of the law, the expert knowledge of the law actually did supply? Uncertainty. Insecurity. The rules and the regulations and the ordinances, they were incapable of providing any reassurance that, that he had achieved eternal life. That, that's actually, folks, a good thing, a very good thing. By, God, by God's design, the law actually achieved just the opposite of that. It provided doubt, provided uncertainty to any who attempted to measure themselves according to the law, according to God's holy standard. It exposes the individual as they measure themselves to God's holy law, his perfect law. And, and I don't know what this man's motive was uh, when he was asking Jesus this question. Don't know exactly what was in his heart. Verse 25 suggests that he was putting Jesus to the test. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily, folks, reflect a malicious intent. The, revorce, uh, the resources that are very conscious of the, the construction of the passages suggest there's an amb- ambiguity on his intent. We're not completely sure. The Expositor's Bible Commentary, that's, that's for decades been regarded as one of the most um, reliable interpretive resources, simply tells us this. The fact that he wanted to test Jesus may, but does not necessarily indicate hostility. He addressed Jesus as teacher, we see. Uh, so the man may have been hostile. But then again, he may not have been hostile. Uh, He may have also been genuinely trying to find the answer, seeking answers to his questions. Putting someone to the test, by the way, isn't necessarily or automatically by default a bad thing. It's not necessarily hostile. Today it's quite common for us uh, in the church here, even as pastors, to have people, pastors, missionaries, call us, uh, seek an audience, uh, promote their ministry, and and uh, we'll usually respond by asking a few questions. You know, what does your, uh, your, your organization believe about the Sabbath? What do you believe um, as far as regards to baptism? Do you baptize infants? Do you believe that faith alone in Christ alone will, and will, uh, will cause you to enter heaven? So in a sense, we're putting them to the test. You understand what I'm saying? We're evaluating them. Um, and, and such questions aren't intended to be hostile when we ask those. We're just trying to sense where do they come from, gauge where they stand theologically. We're trying to discover if the faith that they are professing is within the parameters of Orthodox Christianity. Do they believe correctly? Or are they just out in Pluto somewhere? Folks, some people are out 
you know, orbiting planets out in outer space, you have to ask some questions. Putting some people to the test isn't automatically a bad thing. So we can consider, if you choose, this man's line of questioning is an assessment. It's an assessment. My impression is actually that the conversation with Jesus is civil. It seems to me civil. He addresses Jesus as teacher, and Jesus responds to the lawyer, the lawyer appropriately, with a question. In verse 26, he asks the lawyer, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And you know what else I find shocking? (laughs) The lawyer responds correctly, folks. How do I know he responds correctly? Well, very easily. I just looked ahead to verse 28. That's a little trick y'all can use. Where Jesus tells him, you have answered correctly. Feel free to use that anytime you like. Read ahead. So, So what impresses me so is that this lawyer essentially comes to the exact same conclusion from the law as does Jesus. In Matthew 22, verse 37, when Jesus was asked by a Pharisee, what is the great commandment of the law? Jesus replies by quoting the same section of Deuteronomy as our lawyer. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord with all your God, uh, Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus says, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it says, Jesus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So the lawyer has determined that these two commands summarize the law. They summarize it. In fact, all of the writings of Moses and the prophets, according to Jesus, hinge upon just these two commands. Everything else depends on them. Jesus suggests if you can succeed in achieving just these two things, you fulfilled the law. And then you can know that you have eternal life. He tells the man, do this and you shall live. Do this and you shall live. And, and after studying the law scrupulously for years, the lawyer came to the exact same conclusion as Jesus. So when it comes to understanding the law, he, he's a pretty smart guy. He's a pretty smart guy. Um, we can conclude that Jesus and this man, uh, intellectually at least, are tracking, if not spiritually, Uh, I could be wrong, but I don't really sense a whole lot of animosity between them. They both conclude the law teaches us to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus now transitions or he moves the lawyer from the letter of the law to the heart of the law, the heart of the matter. He simply responds, do this and you will live. Folks, that's all you've... All you've got to do today, all you have to do before you leave today to know that you have eternal life, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Shall we close in prayer? Is that it? Did anyone just get chills down their spine? Is loving your neighbor as yourself good news? Is it good news? When Rita and I lived in Fargo, uh, one day my parents, we went over there and mom had outlined a couple things, a couple articles in the paper she always did, especially if there was something religious 
She'd like to find out my uh, opinion on it. She was probably testing me. And um, she, she had this one article from a bishop of a very large denomination, hundreds of congregations under his authority, and he was in the article citing all the good works that they were doing for the neighborhood, all they were doing in their community, and he summarized their mission by commenting, Scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he added, that is the gospel. Is that the gospel? Folks, that isn't good news. That's not good news. Friends, if you're new to the faith, the term gospel means good news. It refers to how Christ suffered and died on a cross for our sins so that God can pardon us of all of our iniquities. Jesus stood in the gap. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. His sinless punishment was for our iniquities. Therefore, through trusting in Him, Scripture teaches us that we're freed from the penalty of sin. The sinless Lamb of God was our substitute. Now that's good news, folks. That's really good news. And the picture of His death, His burial, His resurrection are painted, a picture of that is painted in Christian baptism. Christians practice water baptism for a number of reasons. Our immersion in the water it surely symbolizes a cleansing. A cleansing from our sins. It's symbolic of that. Also, baptism is a public testimony of our allegiance to Christ. As Christ entered the water to be baptized by John the Baptist, we follow with Him. In fact, there are some people getting ready for baptisms right now. They're following Jesus into the water. People ask sometimes if Jesus never sinned, if he never sinned, why did he get baptized? That's a good question. There's a couple of answers. One, through being baptized, he both affirmed the ministry of John the Baptist and that his ministry was from heaven. You can read about that in Mark 11.30. Was the baptism of John from heaven? Jesus affirms yes. So he affirmed the ministry of John the Baptist and his baptism. Secondly, folks, no good leader would ask all of his followers to do something that he himself was not willing to do. He was sinless, but he led us into the water. So we follow him into the water through faith. But ultimately, baptism foremost represents, if you were in Bible Life Group this morning, you already learned this, it foremost represents how we through faith have died to our own sinful past. We have died with him. And how we've laid aside our selfish interests, all that is sin and continues to entangle us, and we have been raised to new life in Christ. We've died to ourselves. we have been raised to live a life serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what's symbolized. So just be clear, the individuals being baptized in the water today, they're not saved through that act of immersion. They're not saved by that. They're being immersed in the water to publicly proclaim that they've been saved through faith. For Scripture says, for by grace we have been saved through faith. So they're making a public profession of their faith in Christ. They're already saved before they enter the water. 
In actuality, it's their faith that has prompted them to go into the water and they want to profess their love for Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, baptism is a command. It is a command of Jesus that shouldn't be scorned by the believer. Some people, I've heard it expressed before, not very often, but some people say, you know, I'm saved already. I don't really need to be baptized. Scripture commands us to be baptized. What is it about being publicly identified with Christ through water? What is it about that that bothers you? So we need to be baptized and show our allegiance, our love for Him, and our desire to live a new life. Anyhow, everyone... You're all invited to the back corner of uh, our property here off to the left after service uh, to witness these baptisms immediately after service. Our, our lawyer friend has already determined that loving God with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul and all your strength and loving your neighbor as yourself is not good news, folks. Loving your neighbor as yourself is not good news. In fact, if that were the way to inherit eternal life, that would be really horrible news. It would be horrible news because nobody here, you don't even have to raise your hands, nobody here has loved God with their whole heart, their whole mind, all their strength. No one loves their neighbors the way that they love themselves. No one that I'm aware of, raise your hand if you want to rebuke this, but no one here divides their paycheck equally with all their neighbors. We don't make sure our neighbor's car insurance is paid before our own car insurance is paid. We aren't nearly as crushed about a cancer diagnosis of our neighbors as it is when it strikes right at home. We're concerned about self first. We don't love as we should, folks. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. Most people, most of us when we depart worship here, aren't nearly concerned about the quality of lunch or the quantity of lunch that someone else is going to experience after service as we are. In fact, we even argue about where we're going to go. We don't even want to compromise on where we're going to go eat. I want buffet. I'll go to Ruby Tuesdays, fine, you know, but I really want buffet. I'm going to lobby for what I want. But we put on a front, at least, about how selfless we are. Oh, I want to go where you go. I want to go. I'll just follow you. And I look at my heart, even in these little things, and I perceive I don't love others as I should. I don't often put others' interests before my own. I have to strive to do that. I have to challenge myself to do that. And as we study the Bible, we learn that the Christian walk, our walk, includes a continuously increased understanding that we fall so short. We continually through our lives understand how short we fall. The better we do really in, in behavior and in loving others, the more convicted we are of just still how much more we can improve. We, we fall so short. But the awareness of a heart problem and, and, and that that fight to restrain our selfish flesh, our selfishness, shows that Christ is living in you. That, you want, that He's prompting you through the Spirit to overcome your selfishness. It's called sanctification, folks. Growing in Christ-likeness. Growing in the image of Christ, the reflection of Christ, and the life that He lived. 
Um, why do we want to grow in likeness of Christ? Very simply, he is the only one who's ever loved his Father with all of his heart and with all of his mind and all of his soul and all of his strength. Christ is the only one who has ever loved his neighbor as himself. He's done what we don't do. He's our substitute. He has succeeded in, in every way that we've failed. I know I'm not that good. I don't love my neighbor as I should. The lawyer knows it too. So he does what lawyers do. He seeks an exemption from the law. That's what lawyers do. Is there any way we can circumvent this law? And in verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He knows he doesn't love his neighbor as himself. If he has any kind of conscience, you don't even have to be a believer to know that. Just be rational. Therefore, he recognizes he, he's a transgressor of God's holy law. The law that he has learned, the law that he has taught, the law that he's interpreted. So the lawyer crosses his fingers, in a sense, here, and he's hoping that Jesus will give him a very narrow interpretation of neighbor. Narrow interpretation of neighbor. Maybe he'll say, my mother and my father. You know, that would be easy to convince ourselves that we love our mother and our father as we love ourselves. Maybe you'll come up with something like, just love the, the people in your church, your own denomination, your theological tradition, if you just love them. Maybe he'll come with a narrow trans, uh, translation like that or interpretation. I can probably, with a, with a searing of my conscience, try to pretend that I love my church as much as I do myself if I really want to try to convince myself of that. And the reason the lawyer asks, who's my neighbor because he wants an exemption. What Je- what's Jesus going to do, by the way? We're not going to get there today. In, in the next passage, he's going to blow the guy right out of the water. There ain't going to be any narrow interpretation of this when we go, uh, come back to it next week. Um, next week, he's going to show there's no way this lawyer can suggest from the law that he can be justified under the criteria that he just gave Jesus. Can't be done. He must conclude what Galatians 2, verse 16 says, under the law, no flesh shall be justified. And since the law says, love God God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, his only possible conclusion is to acknowledge if that's the way to eternal life, if that's the way to enter heaven, nobody's ever done that. There's no way I'm going to be able to do that. Verdict for the lawyer, he's guilty. He's guilty. He knows he's guilty. We know we're guilty. Folks, your conscience ought to be on trial today. Mine is. You've broken God's holy law. His righteous standard as it's revealed in Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy proclaims this about lawbreakers. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And as James, our, Lord brothers affirmed, our Lord's brother affirmed earlier, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Who here hasn't stumbled in one point? The only conclusion that our lawyer can come to is that the law can never save anyone. 
anyone. We're all lawbreakers. So what is there left for this wise guy to do? What, what is left? What remains? What is the answer to his question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Folks, the Bible, if you're visiting here today, the Bible provides just one recourse, only one. Receive God's grace. Scripture says, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's a promise, folks. That is a promise. As I close, we're going to go out and watch some baptisms. I'd like to read to you a brief order of confession that I grew up with. Reciting it each week, I was not a believer at the time, but I was forced to recite it week after week. And it contains a reference specifically to this passage that we've studied today. Thank God that there were some seeds planted that sprouted much later in life. But the confession, order of confession from my denomination growing up is this. The pastor would read, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from, no, from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Then he continues, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The congregation would say, most merciful God. We confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, speaking to God, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Forgive us. Renew us and lead us. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. And then the, then the pastor would close by saying, in the mercy of Almighty God, Jesus Christ was given to die for you. And for His sake, God forgives all your sins. To those who believe in Jesus Christ, He gives the power to become the children of God and bestows on them the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.